1: So, welcome to another exciting episode of the Vanguards of Healthcare podcast series. My name is Matt Henriksen, the Medical Technology Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, which is the in-house equity research platform of Bloomberg. We are pleased to have with us today John Bloom, co-founder and CEO of Podimetrics, a medical device company that is innovating new ways to help prevent diabetic foot complications. John, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Let's just start off with the path that led you to Um I, I know your background was on the medical side, so walk us through your inspiration to how you found Potometrics.
0: Oh gosh, I, I would say the, the, the be- like the first time I felt the weight of the problem we were dealing with, I was, I was a medical student, I was a a third year, which means I pretty much know almost nothing in, in healthcare it was one of my first rotations, and I'm in the emergency department at the University of Pittsburgh, and I just remember this woman wheeling into the the bay that I was covering uh, with thick ace bandages around both of her lower extremities, and it, you could see that the patient's mental status was already altered. She was looking toxic me, just probably uh, in some way compromised. And As we took down the wraps, it quickly became apparent that there was the scent of you know, pseudomonas, staff, bad infections. And it, even with the understanding that I had at the time, I recognized that she probably was not going to to leave the hospital this time. And you could see her son who willed her in, how much it affected him. And it was just this, like, how could we have caught it so late in this case? It was just so interesting that we caught these wounds and infections to the point that she's seeing us now, with altered mental status, right? It was, it, was, it was jarring, to be honest. And then fast forward to residency. I'm in an, you know, anesthesia residency at Mass General. And I could spend whole days in the operating room doing nothing but amputations, which seemed, again, so surprising to me. This, forgive the, the hyperbolic language, but almost like a conveyor belt of Civil War medicine if disease cut it off. And in each case, we caught them all so, so, so late to the point that they see me in the operating room and that was that was fairly substantive on just how I was viewing the healthcare system as like a, almost a failure of, of preventative care to some of the patients who needed it most. You know, after residency, one of my attendings uh, uh, suckered me into immediately going into device. I was the the uh, global medical director for Covidian in their monitoring division, which was an amazing opportunity. I felt that it felt it was like my fellowship in technology, but that's where I got the the, the bug to think about. You know, helping whole populations at a time, the idea of using monitoring to detect things before they happened. Um, worked briefly at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and then came off to ferment to come back to, to MIT to, to try to get an MBA, to try to learn this language that I was finding myself in. And then just to end this run up to the company, maybe the second or third month of school, there was a hackathon event, a weekend where you could just meet a bunch of folks and come up with any company you wanted. No surprise when I sat down, five of us. What came out was a an amputation prevention company idea, and that from there I, I didn't realize that that weekend was going to completely take over my life, but it but it absolutely did.
1: Yeah, and it just you know the the powerful story there is just that you know this is something that is being treated way too late in the disease progression, uh, and so. Why don't we just start then from the the beginning and, you know, let's talk about the landscape of diabetic patients. And this is kind of the, the your key focus of, you know, the patients that you're looking to monitor and prevent these type of amputations. Walk us through why these patients are initially ultimately at risk for amputation.
0: Yeah, there's there's two reasons. There's really social reasons, I would say, and then uh, physiologic reasons. On the, the physiology side, of course, if if you've had poorly managed diabetes for a period of time, glucose is toxic, so it destroys the the vasculature, leading to things like peripheral arterial disease. So you can't get enough blood flow to regions of the foot when when there's you know demand. You get supply demand mismatching. You, if you you've lost your alarm system, your nervous system, so you, you lose the ability to feel pain, which would normally tell somebody to change a behavior, like if they step on something, to stop. If there's a shoe that's not fitting, they would know to take it off. But in this case, they might have lost that alarm system. High glucose impedes your ability to uh, wound heal. So if you do happen to get a nick, it can persist. And of course, you have skin that's more fragile than normal. And then, of course. Glucose is a wonderful medium for. Wonderful is the wrong word, but it's like a very strong medium for bacterial growth. It, it, it uses that for for it's it's you know source of life, and we can get really bad bugs that can set things like mucor, and, and 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 so it's like a perfect storm where now a person who doesn't have the alarm system can get a wound, not know about it, it can get infected, and then unfortunately have to see me. But it's of course more than that. There's also social challenges that lead to this. You know when. When your nearest source of food is a dollar store, for example, like that's going to be challenging. It's not, just, it's not just some of these physiologic parts. You know, if we look at some of our most vulnerable populations, for example, Black Americans are three to as much as four times more likely to suffer an amputation than white Americans, right? That's a fairly large gap in, in equity here. And a lot of it speaks to just the lack of preventative care in certain regions, access to medications, transportation, so it's a whole host of things that lead to this problem, and it's one that we have to do better work on, both as a healthcare system, as a as a as a, as a country, as and of course as as, as physicians.
1: Yeah, and yeah, one of the things too is that it's yeah. You know, there's kind of the, from my point of view, there's kind of there's you know you start off with diabetes, the disease progresses, it gets worse to a point where it's, it becomes diabetic neuropathy, um, and then because of that diabetic neuropathy, you can't feel the pain in your leg. So it turns into these diabetic ulcers. Is that the right way to kind of think about that progression?
0: Yeah. And it's going to be both progression on, on your, your nervous system or, you know, degradation of your nervous system. So you lose that pain. And then of course on the vascular system. So insufficient blood supply gets to these limbs. And those two things are the root of most of the, the complications we see in the diabetic foot.
1: Okay. And then, yeah, you know, one of the things that I'm constantly getting asked in the, you know, s- since the summer of this year has been the rise of GLP 1s. Um, and, you know, as, you know, quote unquote, air quotes, the uh, cure all of all diseases and ailments mm-hmm. in the world. But I wanted to see what your opinion was about the potential impact for diabetic patients or if there is one.
0: Well, certainly, there's a lot of promise in this class of medications. Some of the early data, even if it's in some smaller samples, like the the journal article, they they showed fairly strong results. Uh, and I think that's been quite a surprise to a number of people. But it's also interesting to see how how strongly the market has responded here. Where you know, I think people have presumed it could be a panacea, it could be this like cure all for condition. And I don't know if that's going to be the case. There's, of course, a lot more to diabetes than just uh, insulin and, and sugar control. There's these social challenges. There's, there's access to care, transportation, some of the things we, we just spoke about. So I don't, although I'm very hopeful about this class of medication and for those who can get it and for those who can stay on it, I think we still need to see where that data is going. I know that there's patients that are having trouble staying on these medications and of course, we're seeing fairly strong rebound once they stop. It may require very long-term, if not indefinite usage to maintain its effects. And I just think we're have to we going to have to monitor its progression to see what impact it's going to have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, definitely a uh, to-be-determined uh, where the long-term play is there. Um, but coming back to diabetic ulcers, um, it, you know, we're... For the healthcare system itself, what is the economic impact um, for this disease state and then worst case scenario for amputations?
0: It's, it's quite costly. You know, I've seen estimates that can be as much anywhere you know, from 80 billion per year in the United States to up to 100, 120 billion. My, my guess is it's closer to around the 80 billion mark. And that's That's just in those patients who've had diabetic foot complications in the prior year. So it's a very small subset of the patients at risk. And what's so surprising about that number is it's on the same order of magnitude as as cancer, I think, which is maybe 120 billion, a little bit rusting that, but it's on the same order of magnitude. And the five year mortality after an amputation is twice that of cancer. So it's this big juggernaut that just isn't as well appreciated, or we're not putting the same level of resources to something that. actually it's quite preventable you know a patient that we care for can cost as much as 34k up to $40,000 per year to care for this patient so it's a very expensive patient a single amputation can cost as much as $100,000 to care for and again what's so striking about it is it is large it could be very much avoidable cost uh, you know for example and actually before i get into the to, to that part you know one of the most the, the biggest challenges in understanding the cost is that diabetic foot complications should, can show up as other things? For example, there was this large Medicare study that was done that showed that while you're while you have an open wound on the foot, you were twice as likely to be hospitalized for a number of different types, independently. So, heart attacks, strokes, C. H. F. exacerbation, C. L. P. D. exacerbation, kidney injury. On the whole, you were three times more likely to be hospitalized and a big drop in, a big increase in mortality. And a lot of that is that this is a an inflammatory bomb that goes off in the foot you're hypercoagulable, you see things like heart attacks and strokes. So you might be, you might misinterpret that here's cardiac costs or pulmonary complications, but the root of it is often a diabetic foot complication, which makes it very difficult for us to, to really see with ease, with great visibility where, what's the root cause of, of much of this? You know, we've done some work in the past uh, particular work with with Kaiser that shows you can make pre- decent cost savings here. And, and I, I didn't mean to interrupt you if you had a thought there, but I can I can walk through that data to show what it looks like for. You. So it, you know, in that study, we, it was a particularly uh, compl- complex patient population that uh, uh, Kaiser Permanente was covering for. It's about two thirds were Black Americans. Um, we were covering patients that had a history of foot ulcer or partial foot amputation in that prior. I believe two years, so fairly recent wound that they were managing. But there by monitoring for these signs of diabetic foot ulcers or or diabetic foot complications, we showed about an estimated $12,000 savings per patient per year. And what was interesting is about two thirds of that was hospitalization avoidance, about a 52% reduction in all-cause hospitalization. But it was interesting to look at what DRGs were removed just to come back to that point. About 48% of those Hospitalizations avoided were diabetic foot complications. No, no surprise. We're trying to prevent amputation. But the other half, 52%, the top four DRGs were myocardial infarction, stroke, CHF exacerbation, COPD exacerbation. So it shows if you can prevent some of those root causes, you can actually see cost savings in a, a, across the, the organ systems.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, the, the, I was making the analogy between, um, you know, the, the, complications, you know, being an $80 billion impact to the, you know, healthcare system. And you were saying it's comparable to cancer. Um, and you know, one of the things I know about with the cancer treatments is they try to treat and diagnose and you know, eliminate the disease earlier in the stage than waiting for end stage, which is kind of, you know, the opposite of what we're seeing with the treatment of, um, diabetic ulcers. It's it's such a, it's such an interesting analogy because that same thing if we just knew about the cancer early
0: enough what we need to do to curb its progression is 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 completely different than if we catch it late and and I always think you know pancreatic cancer isn't necessarily a more a higher mortality cancer except for the fact that it hides so by the time we diagnose pancreatic cancer we see significant metastases across that that's why it has such a high mortality. And it's the same thing here. If we just we catch them too late. Then they're seeing me. They shouldn't. They shouldn't have to see me. We can see these. Uh, we did a seven center trial. You can detect these wounds on average thirty seven days before they present, or five weeks. Then they're they're fairly easy to prevent. You just basically walk less. But if not, then then we're going to catch them late, and we're now down a path where. You're, you could suffer an amputation. Of course, then, like I said, the five-year mortality of that is twice that of cancer. It's, a, it's just a matter of getting better preventative care into the home the moment that it's needed.
1: Yeah, and then so that then opens up the opportunity for metrics with its uh, smart map or smart mat. Um, so, what is the smart mat designed for, and you know, how does temperature measurements help patients prevent these ulcers?
0: Well, I, I wish I was nearly clever enough to be the one that, that, that saw this relationship. It actually came out of, uh, they used to call them leper colonies, right? There was a, in, in Carville, uh, was Louisiana, there was a, a clinician there, Paul, uh, Dr. Paul Brand, who noted that limbs were heating up before they broke down. That was his observation. And it's the same thing you see in leprosy or now called Hansen's disease, where they get they lose their nervous system, they can get these wounds. And he noted that, they would start to warm up before the wound would actually present And using these old thermal cameras, you know, fast forward into the two thousands we really started to understand that if you could start your intervention, when you see a spike in temperature, which is basically the body trying to bring inflammation to a region that's starting to break down to try to do wound healing. It's like a little mini fever. If you start to treat when you see that mini fever in the foot, instead of waiting for it to present as an actual wound, like they had a chance to prevent it. And they did three NIH-funded randomized control trials that showed a fairly stark 71%, I think, reduction on an annualized basis of diabetic foot ulcers. They crushed it. But when we came to be, we recognized that that was nowhere. How could such beautiful science, well, very well validated, why was it nowhere? And what we realized is it was an engagement issue. It was a usability issue. For this patient, who's often overwhelmed with their care, you know, how can you make it ideally in universal in any home, regardless of access to technology that they may have? And how can we make it so it's so simple you could use it daily? And the way that we tried to address that was by building a mat, a very simple form factor. You just step on it for 20 seconds a day, maybe while you're brushing your teeth or combing your hair. And then the patient can go on with the rest of their life. There's no uh, uh, calculations they needed to do on temperature. It's all done automatically. The data is sent to us in a, in a compliant and secure fashion. And then we can have a nursing team that can then reach out to them the moment there's an issue and and give them the support and guidance on how to to offload that so that ideally we can prevent the wound from occurring. And that's the basic infrastructure we built out. And we've had very strong engagement, probably in our veteran population. What we've been seeing is about 80% of patients are still using the mat 12 months after we started. So very sticky platform, provided we give them good care in that period and and, and it helps us drive good outcomes.
1: It's actually, it's interesting that you talked about inflammation as being kind of like a mini fever um, because it's, and so it sounds like that with these ulcers, it's basically a fever in your foot that can't be cured itself. Um, Is that the right way to think about it?
0: Yeah, If they can offload or if we can find whatever was the injury mechanism sometimes it's a poorly fitted shoe it was maybe a couple of days of walking too much or any host of things mm-hmm. if we can identify that and just change that piece then yeah they they can go away they, they don't need to be seen by a clinician we need to make sure clinicians are of course aware they're they're such an intimate important part of of the care that we provide but yeah if you can intervene when you see that spot we can actually eliminate not only that one visit but each of those serial visits that happens once you get a wound to get weekly wound care.
1: Yeah, and so that just comes to this: the importance of uh, having that in-home touch point for these patients. Um, what's kind of the how how does that workload work for the clinician? Because on one hand, they don't mm-hmm. have you know to see the pa- the patient doesn't have to come in. There's fewer complications, but what, what kind of, how does that work? Like they, the f- physician gets the alert and then they reach out to the patient through a telehealth um, channel and discuss what they need to do. Either it's extra rest or some, uh, something along those lines.
0: Yeah. Th- once, once we begin monitoring, my goal, my job is to, to make as little lift on the provider as needed. Like we, I just remember being in a clinician that I had yet another dashboard to look at. It would be like so frustrating. Something else to have to keep an eye on. So the idea is can we be monitoring these, these patients on a one to many on a passive platform so that we can notify the clinician the moment that there's actually work that needs to get done. And the idea that I would send them data every single month and every single patient so that they can review it, even though there's nothing to do, that's, that's a very, that method is a very wasteful method for me when in the fact the promise of remote monitoring is to be one to many, to be in those homes and to cover that patient in between office visits. That office visit structure that we have is is based on sick care. When you need it, you come to me, uh, at least when I was practicing. But the idea is can we bring care to you that moment that's needed? And I, it may not be a, a physician that you need. It can maybe just be uh, a couple quick questions on your your shoe care that can prevent hospitalizations, ED visits, et cetera. So it's it's just giving that coverage in between office visits to minimize work on our already busy clinicians, but to help drive better care and and hopefully a much better experience for a patient who has lost a lot of trust in the healthcare system. And I I think many of them are now very accepting of, of some of these new technologies. There was a recent survey we led in Native Americans looking at some of their just thoughts on, on the care that they're receiving, you know, among uh, participants with type two diabetes, 81% actually felt that remote monitoring should be, should be a part of routine care, but of course, a tiny fraction of them have access to it. And I think with that level of acceptance of the efficacy we see, I think it's just about bridging access to make sure we can get the, uh, the outcomes that we should.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, we're talking about bridging access here, um, we, the product has been, had received a 510k approval in 2015. So what has been the the commercial strategy to for that bridging that access? Um, you know, one thing is to reach out to the customers, reach out to the doctors to know that this technology is available. There's the, you were talking about some of the um, patients in the VA that, you know, 80% uh, adherence rate if I heard that correctly. Uh and then just also just the the reimbursement landscape for um this technology. How does how do, how did all of those kind of triangulate into your kind of commercial strategy?
0: Yeah it, it was interesting. We were I just remember how excited we were we got five k clearance. That was a big deal for a tiny company. Like we we had worked with the FDA and I remember I kept saying the FDA was going to be this scary entity that at least that's the culture in a lot of like startup community and there were they were wonderfully helpful. And we figured out how, what was the best way to do this. We went through the process and we had our clearance. But the funny thing is now the work really begins. We had to figure out how do we create access to this technology. And we wanted more clinical support. So we we actually didn't publish our big trial that helped drive our first commercial launch until 2017. So it just took a little bit longer even after that was done. You know, I, I'm a physician, so I I may have a bias towards more clinical rigor than we see in a lot of other companies. And you know, to me that was just so important to really understand quantitatively how we could what we would expect primarily because when we thought about, you know, how would we get covered instead of working with a reimbursement code, which was really a system would more look at us as a maybe durable medical equipment, when really it's about this whole, this holistic platform that we can build, the, the technology, the tech stack the the nursing support, and we found that payers were you know some of the national payers are paying three to five billion per year on diabetic foot complications, and that we could find a way to help serve them as a way to uh, improve the <laughs> members' experience significantly, uh, dramatically improve you know outcomes and costs, and of course for the it was it was a good everyone wins type of model. It's, it's not the easiest way to commercialize as you still one payer at a time, but it's been a very As we talk about later, it's been a very successful one for us.
1: Actually, one of the things that's interesting is the uh, you talk about the good relationship with the FDA. Um, That's not the first time I've heard that in one of these episodes, and it just it just kind of shows you that you know having that proactive conversation with the FDA is you know they're looking to help these patients too. So they're looking to get these products out, but they want it in the right way. So if you have that conversation back and forth, um, it's a very proactive way to make the the process easier to get approved and the product out there. Um, it, it's so true.
0: And it, it's it's just, we're aligned. Like I think we, you're almost, you know, you, you, you're trained to, to think of it as an adversarial type of relationship. But what is the right way? They want to know that it's safe and effective. That's critical for our healthcare system. We, we, we need that type of a platform to ensure we're actually delivering things that can improve care that are potentially even harmful. So we found them to be wonderful thought partners and we engaged them early. And I think that that was a, a huge part. I mean, we, this is a new type of platform. And they had to think about what is the right way to do this and um, we actually want, you know, I thought 510K was even more rigor. I thought that that was going to be an important part. I think it is an important part. And I, I remember the, you know, w- once we had all that, and we had our first trial, we were very fortunate that the, the Veterans Health Administration was our first place to, to, to try to get it into homes. And we, a number of VAs were a part of that first trial that, that it was, a, I think I might show it, we published it in 2017, it showed we could detect 97%. Of these wounds on the, on the bottom of the foot a little over five weeks before they happened. And it was, you know, VA is a, a complex system, but it was one where one VA facility at a time, we could build it up, see what the data showed and continue to progress it out. And now we're in you know, 49 States of the, of the 50 across the country. It's been a very good first partner and it's been, gave us a lot of insight on how to take it into other health systems, into Medicaid, Medicare, et cetera. It's been a very good one.
1: Yeah. And so, okay, kind of you know, you're in you 49 states uh, through the VA. Um, what are the kind of the, what are your next targets as we think about 2023 and going into 2024 about, you know, the next steps in kind of expanding either by payer coverage or um, just anything else with regards to, you know, expanding out to new doctors or patients?
0: Yeah. A lot of it is about creating access working with more than our, our Medicaid and Medicare partners we have today, continue to do good work there uh, as we scale, focus on really good outcomes, true and north for us. We are in the business of creating really good outcomes for our, for our patients and for our partners. And then get additional contracts. I've been very excited to think about Medicaid working with Indian health services. And you know, where, where is the need, the greatest, where can we do our best work as a company where we're, super consistent with our mission and our values and and these are the places we've been hyper focused on and it's been really data has been very exciting
1: yeah and then you know the, the other aspect of a commercial launch is you know the competitive landscape um so what what is what is the competitive landscape for remote temperature monitoring and you know what Moat, uh, either patent protection or other differentiating technology um, do you have that you know helps differentiate you?
0: Yeah, sure. In, in the beginning it was really just us. You know you, you had some of these early data and I felt like it had been abandoned. So we had to do a lot of work to try to figure out the usability issues, the scalability issues, and even like you know, business model, figuring out how we can make it sustainable. And now there's about a, there's a handful of companies at various stages of product development or, or even maybe early commercialization, and you know I think especially over the past couple of years as they emerge, it's been very validating to us, that, you know that there is really good value that's here, and it is exciting now especially to start to see the needle move on many of our accounts. Now, as soon as we get data back, that's of course the most exciting thing to get to see is how are we doing on patient care, and of course we have. Uh, uh, IP is, of course, is one of the, you know, as you think about building companies for medtech, one of the important avenues and exciting spots is the potential to innovate and, and, and have intellectual property. We were pretty aggressive even in those that first year before <laughs> before we were financed. And still to this day, you know, we have a number of patents in the US, like uh, twice that internationally. of have a number that are still pending. We're, we're fairly aggressive there especially as we just learn important insights, uh, which takes, thankfully I have a, a talented engineering team far smarter than I am, and just trying to keep out ahead. How can we continue to push innovation here? How can we use more intellectual property? And then I also think that just that engagement piece has been very difficult, that, that engagement metric that I have. I think the second highest engagement that I've seen in this space is maybe in the mid-20s percent. So I think as we continue to focus on how to get strong, long-term engagement that's an additional, uh, it'll be tough to catch up to outcomes if, if patients can't utilize their technologies.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, you're talking about, you know, continuing to enhance the technology. Um, what is next in the R&D pipeline? Um, what enhancements can be made to the smart map? And, um yeah, is some is this kind of temperature monitoring able to be used for other indications outside of diabetic ulcers?
0: I, I you, you probably can't see it right now, but I have, of course, a big smile on my face. You know, there's so much more we could do with this bat. Well, so you much know, than, been, what yeah. a wonderful platform.
1: At some point, we got to make these uh, podcasts to be uh, video as well as audio, but uh, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll let you continue.
0: (laughs) You would just see my eyes light up like, there's so much more we can do for this patient. This is such a, unfortunately, a poorly served patient in the healthcare system. Yet we're in their home. They use us near daily. There's so much more we could do for them. And that makes me so excited as we push innovation, not only on the hardware on this mat and extend the platform, but on the data science side. On that care delivery side and then services side, to me, that's the exciting part is uh, in many ways we have address the hardest part, which is how to really find a way to get into a home that often has many gaps in social determinants and many challenges. We, we, we can become a trusted partner. So how else can we help this patient? It's an exciting thing to think about.
1: Yeah. And I mean, is there anything that we should look out for for the next 12, 18 months, uh, kind of as we get through 2024? Uh, any headlines, press releases that we should hear from that you know we should look forward to?
0: Well, certainly for us, it's about getting patients on the platform and delivering good care. And as we continue to launch new partnerships and get into more homes and, and, and have more of our data uh, become published, that's the biggest focus for us north are good outcomes, ex- delivering great care and 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 making sure that you have a patient who's lost hope and trust and to give that back to them as evidenced by long-term engagement. In the VA, we have out to five years of data. I think that's going to be the major focus for us as we share our story is that, you know, how, how we get into homes and, and the level of care that we're delivering.
1: Interesting. And then, you know, the, we- We've talked a lot about the medical side, but so you have to put on your CEO hat every once in a while um, and focus on the financial side. Um, you know, as with any small cap private company, you know, there's the finding the balance between accelerating growth, accelerating your commercial footprint, um, but also understanding that there's that path to profitability. So, kind of, how do you how do you balance those two aspects?
0: I, I remember. At the height of the pandemic, I think Reed Hoffman's uh, Blitzscaling book had come out. It's an amazing book. And it basically says, just keep dumping in capital. Grow. Grow quick. Take market. And it presumed, of course, an economy that had an endless supply of capital. And it, you know, it, it, do, it can move very fast. But it often puts you in, in irresponsible or potentially not sustainable financial positions. And of course, what happened when the pandemic hit, and, and well, I guess at the, the financial markets changed a little, 18 months ago or so, th- that bubble went away and these companies got into real trouble. And I think we as leaders now have to be much more mindful of sustainability. You know, Without sustainability, we don't get our mission. That's everything for us. So now you have to really balance it. Growth at all costs is a today certainly an irresponsible way to do this when we have to be focused on on continuing to scale and delivering great outcomes now fortunately we have a very healthy balance sheet so we can actually run fast responsibly at a time when I think a lot of people are are really pulling back trying to make sure they can preserve cash and that's been a it, it's been exciting to get to think about how can we grow but responsibly grow and making sure that our, our unit economics are really strong so that we have, control to go profitable when we need to, right? You want to make sure you have a healthy business that's run efficiently. And I think of delivering outcomes and scaling at this time, like now more than ever, especially because some of the final challenges we can have, uh, impacts that you wouldn't expect. For example, we had a patient we cared for who had uh, suddenly stopped using the mat. Of course, we're going to call this patient and ask how things are going in this case. Uh, we had to leave a voicemail, but we were fortunate—they called us back the next day. And what we learned is that this patient, the, the pain in their limb, which can sometimes happen with neuropathy, could be very painful neuropathy. Mm-hmm. For this patient, was too much, and they were going to—they were going to take their life, and they had a, a plan on how to do it. Thankfully, we were able to activate EMS with their permission. Although in this case, of course, we, we would—we we really wanted to care for this patient regardless. And and patients still with us. And, and what's amazing is that patient at a time that was very scary to them didn't call their provider or their care manager or even their their daughter who had taken good care of them. They they had called us at this spot. And I think that's just a good evidence. If you can build a good relationship, even at times where you're seeing a lot of financial instability, that we can deliver good care and continue to scale to make sure that we're not missing any challenges that we might detect.
1: So and it sounds like then that you're able to pull the levers to go become profitable with your current revenue base if needed. Is that the, is that the, is, did I hear that correctly?
0: I I would say we, we, we have uh, a good balance sheet and depending on how we do our investments, it it would be within our control. We just have to make sure we're investing smartly though. Like you said, you're always balancing, um, uh, uh, scaling up and growth versus a number of other things, and investing in continue in the tech stack, and I, I think it's just on us now to be intelligent on in how we want to spend for the next uh, period of time and, and find out what's most important for the company.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so it sounds like you know, then you, there's a good runway for the next few years. Um, you know, if I if we come back and join this call and maybe make it a video chat next time. What what, what, do you, what do you think you will be telling me? What's, what would be the story? Is it just kind of we're continuing to expand? Is there how, how do you see that next 12 to 18 months play out?
0: For us, it really is about access. You know there's so many patients at risk. and we're still in, even though we're in a number of homes across the US, we're still just beginning that journey. You know I think for a long time we focused on the development of the system, the engagement models, then clinical trial evidence and now we're at a spot to try to run as fast as we can to prevent any limb that could be lost and of course to keep them with us to keep them with their independence i think that's still that over that period of time my job super clear save limbs save lives save hopefully a lot of needless wasted resources in the healthcare system and, and move the needle as far as possible in amputation it's a patient who i think desperately needs that that hope and and to regain that trust and it's my relentless focus for the next uh, period of time
1: well john it sounds like you have a an excellent um, plan excellent path that you're you're going down so thank you thank you for joining us today on this call
0: man thank you so much for even the time on this this problem it's not one that i think has had the sex appeal as many ones in the past even though it's such a devastating one so Thank you, and uh, would be thrilled, of course, to do that next one.
1: Absolutely. We'll uh, we'll set that on the calendars. And to the listeners, thank you for uh, tuning in to this episode. Um, We will have many more exciting episodes like this in the future. Uh, So tune in to your uh, podcast provider for upcoming episodes. Take care.